I'm on? I'm on. Awesome. Let me pray. Father, how humbled I am today, Lord, to be here with you using me to teach your flock, your sheep, Lord. I just really ask, Father, that your spirit move among us today with your words. Show us what it means to serve you. In your son's name I pray, amen. So we're looking at John chapter 21. Now many people refer to this last chapter of John as John's epilogue for his whole gospel. right? And they say that because John sums up real nicely, I actually think, in his last chapter, chapter 20, why he writes the whole gospel of John. He sums it up in the last verse, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So right there, he sums it up. So people say, why keep writing? Why write chapter 21? And then they say, well, it's because something has been left unresolved. There's something going on between Peter and Jesus that needs to be resolved, and we need to know about it. So I think we're going to find that out. We're also going to find out today how the gospel changes our perspective of what being called to serve means. Because we know that the world tells us that being called to serve means that you need to be strong. You need to be powerful. You need to be a good person. Because that way you can serve well and you can be, help the people who are not strong and not powerful. But we're going to see what the gospel says about that. This morning, real quick, this morning it was funny because uh, today is Veterans Day. I don't know if you guys know that. And um, Katie was like, are you going to bring that up in your sermon? Because she knew I was talking about being serving. And I said, no, I don't know what I'm going to do. And uh, now I'm bringing it up. Um, But I had no idea today would be Veterans Day and I'd be talking about this. So I think it's pretty cool how God works this out to where the whole nation is kind of thinking and remembering how our veterans, how they serve the country. And we're here as his church, as his people, looking at how to serve God and his kingdom. And that's really cool. All right, so we're about to get into this. And before we do that, we've got to set this scene up. Now, people have accused me somewhat of leaning towards the drama and things. I like to pull the drama out, um, you know. But, but I think it's important here. So what we're going to do is we're going to flip to, chap- to Matthew. Look at the, Matthew chapter 26, verse 69. So actually hold your place there with your finger or flipping your iPad or phone or whatever you have. We're going to figure out how radical this scene is by what Peter has done in his relationship to Jesus. Okay? So here we are in Matthew chapter 26. Now, to set this up, Jesus has just been arrested. Right? In the garden. We remember this. Peter does his whole big thing. He pulls out his sword. He cuts the guy's ear off. You know, Jesus has to heal the guy's ear because, once again, Peter is not getting it. You know, and so all the disciples flee the scene. Peter flees the scene. But then Peter comes back to witness the trial of Jesus. And so that's where we are right now in verse 69. So it reads, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, 
you also were with Jesus, the Galatians. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. Okay, stop right there. So, you feel the beads of sweat happening with Peter here? Because Peter's fighting for his life right now. He sees what's going on with Jesus. He sees what's happening with Jesus. And he knows if these people associate me with him, I'm gone. I'm going to the same place he's going. So he's denying it. He is fighting to the point where he is going to bask in a false oath. And we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, right? And a couple weeks ago, Pastor Jeremy spoke about what Jesus says about making oaths. You know, he tells us not to do it. And yet Peter is doing that here. He's going there. Verse 72, and again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly, you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then again, he began to evoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. So stop again. He is like going. I mean, he is a, he is a, he said, I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what's happening. I don't, I don't, you know, he is in it. Shakespeare has this famous saying, the lady doth protest too much, methinks. Basically saying when a person is lying, sometimes they will go overboard to cover that lie. And that's what we have here. Peter is cursing on himself. Unfortunately, we may have witnessed this in our own life at some point. I know I have done this in my own life. Verse 73. After a while, the bystanders came up and said again, Certainly you two are the one for your accent betrays you. Then he began to evoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept. The Gospel of Luke accounts his same denial, and he says that Peter saw Jesus across the room, and Jesus looked at him at this point, and that's how he remembered what Jesus said, that he would deny him three times. I think it's a fair assumption that all of us, at some point, in some level of our life, we have denied Christ. Imagine if he was in the room, and he looked at you at that moment. I think Peter's reaction here is very natural. He fled and he wept because he had failed so greatly. Okay, so flip back to John. Flip back to John. Here we are. Jesus has been crucified. He's been resurrected. John has record that he has appeared before the disciples twice before verse 15 of chapter 21. And both times, he does not mention Peter's denial to Peter. At this point in chapter 21, the disciples have just went fishing. Once again, Jesus teaches them how to fish correctly. So here they are sitting around this fire, eating some 
breakfast, and we start with verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Boom! Done. Restored. Forgiven. Reinstated. You catch it? It happened. There was a question. Do you love me? There was an answer. Yes. There was restoration, forgiveness, reinstatement. Feed my lambs. A part of us, we say, no, wait, 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 wait. That can't be all. Jesus has to say something else here. Maybe after Jesus, after Peter says, uh, uh, yes, I, I love you, Jesus needs to say, well, what happened in a couple of days ago? What's up with that? But he doesn't do that because that's not how our Savior works. There's no guilt here. Now, that is not to say that what's going on here is not complex. What Jesus asked of Peter, there's something happening. And we're going to get into that. Before we get into it, I want to clear something up real fast. There's a translation issue here a little bit. Some people look at what, when John writes in Greek the word love, he uses a different word, agape, than when he writes the word for Peter. When Peter says love. And some people say that that's an issue. But most commentators that I read say we shouldn't look at it too deeply into that because John uses that, those words interchangeably throughout his gospel. That's kind of the way he writes. So we shouldn't focus on that. What we should focus on instead is what did Christ mean when he said the word these? Do you love me more than these? And I think there's three options. Option one, these could mean things. Do you love me more than these things? Remember, they're around this campfire. They've just come back from fishing. So there may be fishing gear or a boat off there. So Jesus may be saying, Peter, do you love me more than this stuff? Do you love me more than your job? Because Peter was a fisherman before he met Christ. Option two, these as in friends. Do you love me more than you love your friends? The other disciples are around. Jesus has, Peter has been with these men for years. Do you love me more than Thomas or Nathaniel or James or John? Do you love me more than your friends? Now these would be very poignant questions for us to answer. I believe they would challenge our own priorities with our relationship with Christ. But I don't believe that is what Christ is talking to when he's speaking to Peter. Because we see from Peter's first meeting with Jesus, back in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, that when Peter has been fishing, and Jesus tells him that famous saying, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. It says in verse 11, that when they had got back to the boat, to the land, they left everything and followed him. So there's already been evidence in Peter's life to where he did leave his job. He did leave his friends. He left everything behind to follow Christ. So I don't think that's what Christ is referring to. Instead, I think it's option three, which is, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Do you love me more than they love me? Now think about that a little bit. That's... um, seems a little strange at first that Christ would word it that way. I mean, is he trying to pin 
Peter against other disciples here, trying to make it a love me more than they love me kind of thing. But to understand this, we have to look back at another conversation that Peter and Jesus had earlier in their relationship. So we're going to do it again. Put your finger here, flip back to Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verse 40. Luke chapter 7, verse 40. And it says this, verse 40. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled both debt. Now which of them will he love more? Oh, excuse me. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged right. So Christ purposely brings Peter aside at that moment so he can understand what is occurring right now. Peter should love Christ more because he should see in a way the other disciples do not how much his sin has been forgiven. After all, the other disciples, they fled in the garden just like Peter. But when Peter had the chance to proclaim Christ like he said he would, when he had a chance to lay down his life for Christ like he said he would, he denied him and betrayed him to his face. And now Christ says, Peter, I still want you. I am reinstating you back into the ministry. I am re-enlisting you. Feed my lambs. We're back in John, chapter John. Good John here. Verse 16. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. So Christ is asking him again, why? He just restored him. It should be over. But Christ is building up to something. He's building a little suspense. Now, look at Peter's response to these two questions. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Do you notice something? There is no pride here. Very different than how he was when he denied Christ, swearing and making oaths, trying to posture. Now this restored Peter can only boast in the Christ that knows everything. He can only count on the Lord's omniscience to look into his heart and not at what he has done and know that he loves him. And that's what Jesus does. Look at this shepherding motif. Tend my sheep, feed my lambs. Our good shepherd is reinstating one who once denied him back into his flock. But he's going even further by instating him to a role of a shepherd, overlooking that flock, a high position. The world says, you can't do it this way. He needs to build his trust back up. Wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. Peter needs to prove that he loves you. You need to have some kind of evidence. But again, That's not how the gospel works. 
Verse 17. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said it to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Feed my sheep, excuse me. So three times Peter denied Christ. Three times Christ affirms and reinstates Peter for the ministry. Now Peter is grieved here, right? Which is a natural reaction for any of us who have ever been questioned by someone and feel like that person is not believing what we're saying. But again, it goes a step further. Think about this. Think about the last time you really wronged somebody. You did something really wrong. Maybe you spoke out in anger to them, which 99% of the time you shouldn't do anymore. Maybe you lied about them and they found out. Maybe you betrayed them. Whatever it is, think about the last time you did something wrong. The person then confronts you about what you did. Was your reaction similar to Peter? Or was it similar to how he was in the book of Matthew where he was all of a sudden... You know, denying what he did. He was rationalizing, possibly. Maybe we also, you know, say, hey, um, maybe you, you interpreted what I did wrong. I, I really didn't do it like that. But I'm sorry if you interpreted it that way, which is not an apology. Peter is a lot different than he used to be. And why is that? So we're going to find that out in a second. So look at verse 18. Christ goes there. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show that what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus prophesied Peter's martyrdom. Commentators say that the saying that Christ uses right here in verse 18, you will stretch out your hands, was a common phrase that people used for being crucified. They would say he got his hands stretched out. So Peter knows exactly what Christ is talking about. And Peter still follows him. John gives us his parenthetical in verse 19. Right, This he says so that by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. Because John is assuming the reader here knows that Peter has died. John wrote this gospel in about 70 A.D. Peter died around 65 A.D. So John's assuming we know this, and he's telling us Christ told him this was going to happen. So catch two things. One, John is very clear that Peter's death will bring God glory. Two, Even after Christ tells Peter that he will die feeding his lambs, tending his sheep, feeding his sheep, Peter still follows him. So the Peter that once denied Christ to save his own life now is willing to die to bring glory to God. So church, what does Peter's reinstatement here tell us about our call to serve? And why is that so different in the world? I have three points. One point. The call to service requires humility. Peter is reinstated by the risen Savior because he has lost his sense of pride. 
Why? Because he realizes just how sinful he is. That is why he is so different here. By understanding his failures, he sees now his true self. The Peter that at one time couldn't wait to lead the charge. He would take out his sword and cut somebody's ears off. The Peter that at one time would stand before Christ and say to him, Christ, listen, all those men will fall away, but I will not. That same Peter now sees just how much he failed at every account to live up to those things. So now we see a Peter And we hear of a Peter that could write words like this. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. 1 Peter 5. It's when we are humble that Christ can use us. When we look at our own pride, it should actually humble us to realize the Lord wants to use us. He wants us. Here's, a, here's an example. Think of, uh, think of those romantic, really bad romantic comedy movies. You know? But, and they have a cliche scene, okay? They have this cliche scene where you have the beautiful girl who's like the ugly duckling right? And she's sitting there with her big nerdy glasses before they were cool, okay? And she's sitting there and, and the, the Prince Charming character, he walks up to her, he, he takes off her glasses. And, and the audience, we're supposed to go, oh, she's beautiful, you know, because she took off glasses. And, and, and he says, he says, you're beautiful. I want to be with you. Come dance or something, right? Right? So, so, it's like that, except completely different here. Because the gospel says that our Prince of Peace, our Prince Charming, he comes to us, instead of taking off glasses, he puts glasses on us, so that we can see just how ugly we are. It is not some superficial ugliness, it's like deep inside of us. It's pride, it's selfishness. It's things that say, I want to be first, you can be last. When I get mine, then you can get yours. And then Christ says, you're ugly. I will make you beautiful. Come. Come with me. Let's dance. Then all we can say It's me? The world can define humility as our relationship with each other. That's what it's based on. If you're a little bit more prideful, then I'm more humble than you. Maybe you'll be a little bit more stuck up, therefore I'm humble. But that's not how the gospel defines it. C.J. Mahoney, in his book on humility, says... That humility humility is honestly assessing ourselves in the light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Humility is about knowing who you are as a sinner. We are not ready to serve Jesus 
until we realize how unworthy we are to serve him. The calling to serve is humbling. Point two, the call to service requires you to die. Death to self. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And we see from verse 18 that a call to service can literally cost us our very lives, like it cost Peter. Yet when Christ uses words and says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, we know that he is not just referring to a physical death. We know he is talking about something which happens minute by minute, day by day, in our daily lives. There's a suffering that goes on there. It hurts. And as Jeremy would say, it is a hard truth of the Christian faith. That it's going to hurt to die itself. It's going to hurt to serve. And it ranges, you know. This dying itself could mean for you that you may have to wake up on a day when you want to sleep in so you can come and learn with your brothers or sisters. And we can make disciples of one another and we can edify the body. It may mean that you're going to have to take time to minister to your children when all you want to do is relax, watch some TV, It might mean that you're going to have to take some time to pray with your spouse. It might mean, and it does mean, we're going to have to learn how to love our enemies. It will mean giving up our money and our time when we feel we don't have any more to give, yet we do. A call to service requires us to live sacrificially, dying to ourselves. A call to service requires humility. Now there's a problem here. I don't know if you caught it. How can we succeed at doing this when we see that Peter failed at doing it? Peter lived with Christ for years, and yet at the time, he failed at doing it. How can we succeed and follow Christ and live for his glory when the world tells us, no, we got to be a little bit proud. You need to be self-glorifying here. You have to serve others if it makes you feel good. You need to serve others if you're going to get good back to you. Because that's the karma philosophy, right? You do good so you'll get good back. But yet that all pins down in selfishness. So how do we strive away from that? How do we put others before ourselves? How do we suffer while giving our time and our money? How do we deny ourselves to the point where we can love people that we hate? And even more to that, why does Christ enlist Peter back when he's seen that he's failed? At doing this. He gives him the same task. So why does he do that? Because Christ knows that Peter now gets the saving grace. And that's the third point. A call to service requires us to worship 
his grace. It's only because of Jesus' grace that Peter can recognize that he is a sinner. Therefore, he's humble and can serve, willing to get nothing back in return. He's just honored to serve. It's only because of Jesus' grace that Peter can see how much he has been forgiven. Therefore, he's able to love much. He's willing to put others before himself, denying himself to the point of death. Christ can and he does enlist us because he turns our failures into his glory. It's the weak that he calls to serve. The worldview tells us something completely different. The world tells us, no, it's based on your performance. That's how you serve. The gospel says it's not based on your performance. It's based on what he has performed. So, it's when we begin to worship our Savior's grace, to truly know it, that is when we will be able to serve with humility and die to ourselves. That's when we'll be able to be, not be serving for the sake of ourselves, but instead we will be fueled by his grace into a life, a life of service to bring him glory. I'd like to call the worship team. If I'll say this, when it all comes down to it, Christ was about making a worshiper out of Peter. He's about making a worshiper out of him. And that's what he's about in us. Because a worshiper doesn't care about himself. If worshiper doesn't care about his, his self-worth, all worshiper cares about is worship. Christ wants to make us the type of worshipers that we can echo the words of the apostles when they said in the book of Acts that they considered it, they rejoiced. They rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus. So how is the Lord calling us to serve Let his grace fuel us to that act of worship. Let me pray. Father, I may have failed miserably today, Lord, but you have not. You have spoken to your people, Father. Burn in their hearts. Be a consuming fire, Lord. That they may see. They may see you for your beauty. And they may see their own sin. Let us be a people, Lord, that serves with humility, with self-sacrifice. Willing to die. So all these things that are unworthy, Lord. You are the only thing worthy. Son's holy name, I pray. Amen.